Let's turn to John chapter 15, if you will. John 15, and we're going to continue our study on Jesus and his seventh I am statement. I am the true vine. Oh, whoa, whoa, hey, hey, whoa, get, get back over here. I forgot one announcement, one very major announcement. See, that's the thing. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm getting old. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, no, I'm not kidding about being old, but I mean, it's getting there. Uh, but no, this is a, a very important announcement. We, uh, uh, the pastors, have been praying uh, uh, in regards to our leadership and uh, the uh, overseeing of certain ministries, and and uh, the Lord uh, truly put on upon our hearts uh, to uh, ask uh, one of our deacons, uh, uh, Ruben Guerra, uh, to uh, actually step up to become an elder here in the church and uh, and he's going to be overseeing and he is overseeing now the uh, security and emergency response team here at the church so uh, Reuben and his wife Pat they're going to be well Reuben will be ordained uh, this next service in, in the second service but we wanted to acknowledge him to all the to all of you and, and to last night as well but uh, Reuben's standing back there in the back next to uh, Robert who just came in to hug him there's Reuben okay <laughs> And uh, so I just ask you to pray for him and pray for us because, uh, you know, our heart's desire is for, you know, the leadership of this church to serve you and to serve you with, with, with humility. And, then, and these are certainly the qualities that we see in the men that serve, serve you here. So uh, keep uh, Reuben and Pat in your prayers. Okay, now John 15. I'm sure I'm glad Son came out and, and started pointing, you know, uh, about all these things. Well, Jesus is now on his way to the cross, and, and, and there's not a whole lot of time between where he is now and, and, and that, that moment when he will be taken and, and hung on the cross to die for us. And he's uh, speaking to his disciples along the way. And uh, since today's... Uh, the day of, of our coming to the communion table, it, it's, 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 it's quite good timing on, on the Lord's part to bring us to a, a greater understanding of what true communion and fellowship is with Jesus. And that has a lot to do with him saying to his disciples, I am the true vine. I am the vine, he said in verse 5, and you are the branches. And so, as he's moving along with them, on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he says to them, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman, or the vine dresser, actually. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. 
He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. And as we learned last time, Jesus, as I've already stated, was speaking to his disciples as they were headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. More than likely, though, using either the carved grape clusters and vines that were on the doors leading into and out of the temple, or perhaps... Uh, walking by a vineyard along the way to proclaim his seventh I am statement. I am the true vine. And giving explanation and clarity to his statement. Now, his disciples would have known that Israel was the Lord God's vine. They would have known that. They were Jewish. They would have known. For in separating Israel from the Gentile world, It was the will of God that they should be his testimony in the earth and to bear fruit for him. That is, all of the nation of Israel. And as we've learned, the vine is of of little use other than being a bearer of fruit. I mean, you certainly can't build a house with the wood of a vine. You can't make any furniture of any value with a vine. You can't even use it effectively as a source of fuel since when you cast it into a fire, it flames up in a moment or two and then it's gone. And I I wonder if that was the very reason why God in Ezekiel chapter 15 was was telling us that they were going to be used as fuel because they're not as even effective as, as fuel. But a vine was intended for one thing and one thing only and it is to bear fruit. The Lord intended Israel to bear fruit for him and to glorify his name before all the nations of the world. But I want you to consider the sad words of the prophet Hosea. Because in Hosea chapter 10 verses 1 and 2, listen to these words, especially in verse 1 here. He said, Israel is an empty vine. Wow. If a vine is is created and made to bear fruit and it's an empty vine, what does it say about that vine? Israel is an empty vine, but then he, te- then he says, he bringeth forth fruit unto himself. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I tell you, if, if, if you plant things in your garden, I mean, you want the fruit to grow, and in, in essence, that fruit brings glory to you, doesn't it? Many years ago, and I, I was, I never had a green thumb. And I mean, I've never had a green thumb in my life. But then one year, I just, was, I just decided, you know what? I want to grow some tomatoes. I went out and bought some tomato plants, and I planted them, and I put those little, you know, things over them, the metal things, you know. I guess that's called hope. You know, you put the metal things over them, you know, that maybe the vines will attach, and then they'll grow, you know. And then I bought all of this stuff that you, you kill the bugs with. You know, I might as well just, just have been living out there 
looking them, you know, watering them every day, you know. But uh, eventually, eventually, I started seeing tomatoes. But I didn't realize I had planted beefsteak tomatoes. And I couldn't believe how big these tomatoes grew. And they kept growing and growing, and I kept pulling off these big, huge tomatoes. I took a picture, and I had all these tomatoes. I was smiling because I, it, I, it glorified me. It was the only time I ever grew anything like that, you know. Never did it again. But that's fruit glorifying you, right? It didn't grow for itself. You plant, you water, you take care of, and things grow. So think about this. Israel is an empty vine. God planted them, as we saw last time in Isaiah 5. God planted them, but, he, but it says he bringeth forth fruit unto himself. And then he explains, according to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. Uh, according to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. And now you begin to realize, you know, they began to glorify themselves, and then they went out after other gods, and they began to build altars for other, other gods and idols and all. And notice in verse 2, it says, their heart is divided. Now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. So what it came to be was that there was no real fruit for God. And whatever fruit they had, it was for themselves. But we saw in Isaiah 5 verse 2 last time what kind of fruit it was. Wild grapes. And wild grapes, as we said, are, are just, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're not good. They're not good for anything. They're, they're, you know, they're bitter and they're, yeah. You know, they're sour. They make you make neat faces, but that's about all they're good for. You know. So the Lord rejected the earthly vine. Since it wasn't his exact and precise testimony to the world. Now, that is not to say that they never gave testimony to the true and living God, because in fact they did. And for a good while. And many times that was done in spite of the sufferings that were heaped upon them by idolatrous nations, which they actually endured. They endured those things. They gave glory to God. God blessed them. But as far as being God's witness to the truth of Messiah, well, that's another matter. Because as I referred to that parable that Jesus gave of the vine dresser that, you know, sent others to the people who he had chosen to take care of the vines and they would kill the ones that he sent. He eventually said, I'll send my only, my only son, I'll send him. And they've got to, they've got to listen to him, the, the son of the owner of the vineyard. And yet they killed him too. Savior he sent into the world. But they had no testimony. They had no witness. Because they were, they were bearing fruit for themselves. So now Jesus says to his disciples as he faces the cross, I am the true vine. He's now the witness of God in the world. He is the witness of his father in the world. He was to bear fruit for his father, and as we said last week, he certainly did bear fruit for the kingdom of God. And you know, by what he did, he's still bearing fruit today. But he was going away, as we said. 
was going to the cross. And then after the cross, he would die. And then after his death, he would be placed into a tomb. And after three days, he would rise again from the dead. And not many days after that, he would ascend into heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father where he is today. And so how was he going to take Israel's place in giving witness and testimony and bearing fruit in the world? It was by what he said to his disciples. He said, I am the vine. My father is the overseer of the vineyard. My father is the vine dresser. And you, redeemed believers and followers of me, you are the branches. You're the branches. And by the way, those branches are going to bear fruit in this world. The branches are going to bear fruit in this world. The great theme of these eight verses is bearing fruit. But there is, there is a significantly important condition here. You've got to know what this condition is. The condition of this is communion or fellowship with the Lord himself. Communion and fellowship with the Lord himself. You will bear no fruit any other way. Communion and fellowship with the Lord himself. Now, we use a different word here, or at least Jesus uses a different word than what we commonly use as, uh, for fellowship, which is koinonia in the Greek. But nonetheless, it is still a, a, a very strong term and a strong word in fact, in a sense, it's even stronger than koinonia because it is a personal, it is a personal aspect that, that Jesus is, is referring to. He uses the Greek word for abide. It is the word meno, M-E-N-O, and it carries a very full meaning. This little word means to abide, to remain, to dwell, to continue, to tarry, and to endure. I mean, that's a pretty full word. And, and in whatever state or place or relation you may be in, abiding according to the fullest sense of the word means you are staying put in your communion and fellowship with the Lord. That's a pretty strong picture, isn't it? If you are abiding in Christ, you are staying put in your fellowship and your communion with Jesus. Now, where else would you be? I mean, where else would you rather be? I don't want to be anyplace else but there. So, to abide in Jesus means to keep in fellowship with Christ so that his life, because remember, abide in me and I in you. It means to keep in fellowship with Christ so that his life can work in and through us to do what? To produce fruit. And this is why it is critical to understand the basis upon which the Lord makes the statement in verses 2 and 3. Now listen carefully. And this is where a lot of people get confused in this, in this passage of Scripture. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. All right. Underline taketh away or take away, whatever it is. Taketh away. Underline that. Very important. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. So underline the word purges or purge. That it may bring forth more fruit. 
Now verse 3. Now you are clean. Underline clean. Through the word which I have spoken unto you. So now I'm going to use a couple of terms, a couple of terms that that, uh, identify uh, two uh, types of systematic theologies. Okay, I don't want to go into great detail about this. Some of you know these terms already, uh, but some of you may not. But but don't worry, I'm going to explain really what, what their views are concerning this passage and one other passage. So here it is. So just as the hyper-Calvinist, just as the hyper-Calvinist who holds to the extreme view of eternal security, just as he misinterprets the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 by saying that the son is always the son no matter how deep into the pigsty with the swine he goes, he'll eventually repent and return to the father. Just, they, just as they misinterpret that, and let me tell you why they misinterpret it very quickly. Because if you believe in, in biblical consistency in the scriptures, especially in the parables that Jesus tells, he told two parables before the parable of the prodigal son. You know what they are? The parable of the lost sheep, emphasized lost, and the parable of the lost coin. And thirdly, it is the parable of the lost son. So they misinterpreted that to try to prove their point that a person is always saved no matter what. You know, no matter what, where they end up. Okay, well, we can argue certain things on that. So just as they hold to this extreme view of the, product, of, of the parable of, of the lost son or the prodigal son, so the counterpart which is the Arminian position. Calvin, as you know, it comes from Calvin. Uh, Arminius, uh, Arminius is kind of the one that was, uh, was given the name or, or gave the name to this other, other theological position. But the counterpart, Arminian, uh, who takes to the other extreme of the salvation issue, looks at this passage here in John chapter 15, And fears that once a person is saved, if they're not careful, will destroy their relationship with God by saying, can't you see that if the branch doesn't bear fruit, it is cut off from the vine? Picturing the Christian lost forever, if not bearing fruit. The problem with with that is, of course, does a Christian lose his salvation? Does a true believer lose his salvation? Okay. We're not going to argue that particular point. I'm just talking about how this is misinterpreted. Because at worst, you're lost. (laughs) At best, you're a backslidden Christian. As I said last week, this is not about the issue of salvation. This is not about the issue of salvation. Not fully. So let's consider the phrase then in verse 2. Let's consider the phrase. And by the way, you know, when you start taking up all these systematic theologies... Because men put it all together, there's, there's bound to be some faults in it. So let's just study the Word of God. Amen? Okay. So every branch in me. Now, I'm going to emphasize in me. Every branch in me. What does that say? There's a connection, isn't there? You are connected. So every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Ooh. 
Okay, the he is, of course, the vine dresser. That's the father. But does the father take away? We need to understand what the word is for that phrase, take away. It's quite interesting that the Greek word for the phrase, taketh away, is the word airo, A-I-R-O, the Greek word. But it can also be translated, and more than, more than anything, it is translated this way. It means lift it up. Lift it up. Now, if you were here last week, you know that I alluded to this last time when I mentioned that at times, branches could become heavy and lower to the ground, and in so doing, they would not get the sun that they would need to produce the best of the fruit. So the vine dresser, this is what a person who, who, who owns and, and cares for vineyards does every time he goes out when there's, a, there's a, an expected harvest of fruit. They will go out and, 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 and he would come and he would see how these branches are down on the, on the ground and he would lift the branches up and he would brace them up, sometimes putting certain things under them so that they're not on the ground. Other times, the branches would lay on the ground and become so dirty. And if the fruit stayed there, as I also mentioned last time, it wouldn't be the best of fruit if it stayed there. But if it was propped up, what else would he do? The vine dresser would lift it up so as to wash the fruit and cleanse it. Now, consider the Greek word for purge. It is the word katharizo. We get an English word that's connected to that, catharsis. But katharizo, which can be translated to cleanse. To cleanse. The purging process is many layered in that there is a level of pruning that takes place. There's actually trimming back. Those of you who are into horticulture and know all that kind of stuff, know that, you know, you take a, a plant, if there's a lot of little branches here and there, you know, you go back and you start trimming it back a little bit. For what purpose? To bear fruit. Or if it's flowers, you know, or, uh, you know, you, you trim back so that you can get a better uh, harvest of flowers. That's a pruning. That's a, that's a pruning is, is a cleansing as well, isn't it? So the purging process is many layers. And along with a certain amount of cleansing and washing. But it's all for one purpose. It is always for one purpose. And what is that? That the branch may bring forth more fruit. So you look at verse 2 and you say, wow. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it. That it may bring forth more fruit. So that doesn't seem a bad or destructive thing, does it? No, not at all. In fact, it's a good thing. Even though we're not inclined to appreciate or even like the process of pruning, because a lot of us who understand the pruning process in, in a believer's life knows that that hurts. Pruning hurts. Sometimes cleansing hurts. I mean, you ever scrub your dog when you, you know, you're taking, giving him a bath because he's been in the mud and it's matted all over the place and you're trying to pull the hair, you know, clean it and brush it. You know, and they want to run away. Yeah, but when it's all done, they smell nice. And you put a little bow on them and it looks sweet until the next moment they go out and roll in the mud or whatever. The washing itself is certainly a blessing. When we 
first came to Christ. Think, think about this. When we first came to Christ and as we walk daily as believers, it, it, it never stops. The cleansing, the purification, the, the, the purging never stops. Look at Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Titus 3, 3, 3 through 7. Paul said, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That was our life before Jesus, wasn't it? But after that, the kindness and love of, our God, of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy. Notice, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The washing of regeneration. He washed us in our rebirth. Which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. But folks, it doesn't stop there, does it? Every day we, we, we face this, this challenge of, of walking in the way of, of the word of God, in the way of the Lord. And Paul, in using an example from Ephesians chapter 5, where he uses an example from marriage. Notice what he says to the husbands in, in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. That he, as the bridegroom, might set apart, sanctify, and cleanse it, <laughs> the bride with the washing of water by the word. So it is through the word of God that we are cleansed every day if we stay in the word of God. For what purpose? That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Do you know that that's really bearing fruit too? But then there's this level of pruning, this, this level of the pruning process that we're not so confident about, you know. It's, it's a cleansing of a different sort, as the Apostle Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 4. Listen to his words in verses 12 through 19. Peter says, Beloved, and I love the fact that he would say beloved to the church. He says, Beloved, you are loved by God, beloved. He says, Think, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you or test you as though some strange thing happened unto you. See, here, here's a quick thought. To some people, it's a strange thing. Hey, listen, I came to Jesus. I'm protected now. Aren't I inside a bubble? I'm in a holy bubble? No. Why is this happening to me? I'm a Christian. I'm saved. Well, you better read the Word. Because the Word is, is, is telling us that in this world we'll have tribulation. That was Jesus' words. We already read, read those. We're going to read them again. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to test you or try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice. And this sounds a lot like James. You ever seen, read the first chapter of James, first couple of verses of James, you know? 
Rejoice when you fall into various trials and testings, temptations. Rejoice. See, that is not a natural thing. That is not a fleshly thing to do, to rejoice in the midst of trials. It is not. Why is it that when someone passes away or someone dies in the church, I don't mean dies in the church, but I mean, die, you know, who's a member of the church. But, but you know, they die, and, and, you know, the family's sad. We're all saddened because, you know, this, it's, it's, it's a, a loss that we have among us. But nonetheless, what, what do we know? What, what, do, what do we always come back to? Oh, but, you know, because they really love Jesus. They're, they're with the Lord today, you know. So, so what do we do? When we gather together, what, what do we do? We, we, we sing. We sing at funerals. We play music. It comforts our hearts. In effect, we are rejoicing that that person is now in the presence of the Lord. I've been to, and maybe you have too, I've been to funeral services or little wakes or whatever, you know, where they don't have any music at all and they're not a happy face and, and nobody wants to speak because they don't really like the person that's dead, you know. And they don't, you know, because they don't have a good thing to say. And, and so they're like, well, we're challenged here. So, you know, just, uh, just come by, say hello, you know, and out the door you go. And it's sad, isn't it? That's sad. Because it's not a natural thing to rejoice in the midst of trials or troubles or persecution or pain or loss. But rejoice, he says, in as much as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, in other words, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. Hey, that's fruit. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Man, it's not a matter of suffering in the sense that if you, I mean, if you're, if you're a thief and you take stuff, hey, and you get caught or whatever, uh, you've got to face the, face the music, okay? Face the music. Or as a murderer, or as an evildoer, busybody, gossip. Folks, don't be gossiping in the church. Somebody has to correct you. If you get corrected, you know, that's not suffering. You're not suffering if you get corrected for those things. He says, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. And that's what we do every day. We commit our lives to the Lord every day. No matter what happens to us, our soul is committed to the Lord. We are committed to him every day. So as hard as it may seem, the conclusion is the same. The Father prunes and he purges the branches of the living vine also that we may bring forth more fruit. The purpose of the cleansing and the pruning and the lifting up is the same. There, oh, by the way, between, between verses 2 and 5, you'll see these three phrases. Bear fruit, bear more fruit, 
bear much fruit. That's a progression. Bear fruit, bear more fruit, bear much fruit. And that to the glory of God. But someone might ask, what do you mean by fruit? Well, let's consider a couple of things. First of all, let's consider the fruit of, of Christian character. Now, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is, is, is uh, this uh, fruit that Jesus is, is, in fact, speaking of, but, but there is some connection that I want to bring to mind to you today. So consider this. It, it's the fruit of Christian character. And we read it in Galatians 5, and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and, and against such there's no law. Now, all of these together constitute fruit for the glory of the Father. A person may profess. Now, remember, I didn't say confess. There's a difference, a slight difference between professing and confessing. We confess Jesus Christ and believe in our hearts that he's risen from the dead. He shall be saved. But there are some who just profess, and it's just out of the mouth, not so, not so much from the heart. So a person may profess that they've been saved through faith in the Lord Jesus, but is the fruit of the Spirit seen in their life? So it will be, I mean, the fruit will be seen if, if they are living in fellowship and abiding in Christ. But if anything contrary to these characteristics is manifest, anything contrary to that, then they're not living in fellowship with God. Now listen carefully. Instead of love, they will manifest bitterness and malice and unkindness. Instead of joy, they'll manifest despair. Instead of peace, they'll manifest unrest. Instead of long-suffering, they'll manifest impatience. Instead of gentleness, they'll manifest harshness. Instead of goodness, they'll manifest evil. Instead of faith, they manifest worry. Instead of meekness, they manifest pride. Instead of self-control, they manifest the, uh, being subject to the, the lusts of the flesh. No matter what a person professes, they're not living in fellowship or abiding in Christ. And then there's fruit as a result of service. And this is more down along the lines of what Jesus is talking about. There's fruit as a result of service. Now, that's broad. That's a, that's a broad term. So let's, let's narrow it a little bit. The service of, of winning souls to Jesus Christ and to the kingdom of God. That's bearing fruit. And also, the building up of believers is fruit for the glory of God. The building up, the edifying, the instructing, the lifting up by giving forth the word of God. Uh, let them know I'm not here. I'm, I'm busy. Now, they were to abide in him, cleansed by the word, and made conscious of the importance of fellowship. So listen carefully to John 15, verses 4 and 5. It says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. We need to be careful of a self-confidence that causes us to forget our need of constantly abiding in Jesus Christ and of ever being before him in communion. 
in fellowship. Even as teachers who twice or three times weekly must be diligent and prepare biblical studies to feed congregations, they cannot forget in the rush of daily things the necessity of being before God, alone and quiet, to listen to the voice of God before bringing forth the word. And it doesn't matter how many years a person has been a Christian. They need to continue to manifest increased fruit. It, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't count if, if we say, you know, I've been a Christian for almost 50 years, and you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kick back. I'll let those youngins bear fruit. I've borne enough fruit in my life already. Really? Well, then you haven't read Psalm 92. Because in Psalm 92, it says in verses 12 through 15, the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. Which literally means you continue to flourish in the courts of our God. And look at verse 14. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. Now I know that many times I say there's no old people here. Just don't, <laughs> don't be pointing now. I'm not looking. No, there's no old people here. We're all new in Christ. But our bodies sure are going through it, right? There's a little bit of age in here. That's all right. That's all right. It's good. The Bible says that's good. There's wisdom in that. But understand, they shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing. I like that part. Well, I'm a little less of that already, you know, last few months, but, you know, still happy. They shall be fat and flourishing. To show, now here's the reason, to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So, we're to continue bearing fruit, amen? The last quick lesson before we come to the table of communion is this. Verses 6 through 8. Jesus said, if a man abide not in me. And this is critical, so listen carefully, because I'm not going to misinterpret this. But I'm going to tell you something that most people don't, don't really just focus on. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch. Branch that is not on the vine and is withered. Because you wither when you're not on the vine. But notice this. And men, underline men, highlight it, underline it, and put arrows toward it. And men gather them and cast them into the fire. And they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. So listen carefully. If there is no communion, if there is no fellowship maintained in Christ, if prayer is lacking, and if the word of God is neglected, then the testimony and the witness of a professed believer counts for nothing.
It counts. The testimony counts for nothing. Here is what most don't normally see. When these things mentioned are not manifested in a person's life, the man, then man, notice, man, utterly ignore the testimony of those who profess to be Christ's, those who do not live in fellowship with God and do not manifest the spirit of Christ. The world says, you speak a lot, you say a lot, but I look at what you're doing. It is as if men, well, let me just say this, their testimony counts for nothing. It is as if men then gather these ineffective testimonies and cast them into the fire to be burned. And how often does that happen every day? When we're not living our lives before Christ in the righteous way, in a godly way. And letting our lives walk the talk instead of just talk and talk. So their testimony had no weight with them. It's as if one person who said years and years ago, what you are speaks so loud that I can't hear what you say. You're saying one thing, but, I, but, but you, you, what you are speaks louder than that. So that I can't hear what you're saying. The real secret of answered prayer. Are you all ready? Because, you know, sometimes when somebody says, I've got to answer to the secrets of something. Right? The real secret of, of answered prayer and of abiding in Christ is no secret at all. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and... My words abide in you. There it is. No secret. 